Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to take a second look at Bach's famous contemporary, George Friedrich Handel, this time focusing on his instrumental music. Instrumental music appears to have taken a back seat to choral and vocal music for much of Handel's career, but he nevertheless composed quite a bit. From keyboard suites to sonatas for solo instrument, trio sonatas, and concertos of various types, most uniquely perhaps a set of organ concertos, as well as various and assorted other works for orchestra. We're going to begin by taking a look at one of Handel's harpsichord suites. While Handel did not devote nearly as much of his career to teaching as did Bach, he is known to have had some keyboard students, including some aristocratic young ladies, and it's possible that some of these keyboard works were composed as teaching pieces. The various suites take on a wide variety of forms. Some are in the standard four-movement sequence of Alemán, Courant, Sarabande, and Gigue. Others begin with a more improvisatory prelude, perhaps followed by a fugue. Some follow the older Italian sonata da chiesa pattern of alternating slow and fast movements, with at least one employing some fugal imitation. Others mix in non-dance movements, such as airs or arias, sometimes with variations. Suite number seven in the first collection begins with a French overture, a genre which Handel was particularly skilled at adapting to the keyboard. In the second series of suites, many of which date from even earlier than those in the first series, Handel even makes use of non-standard chaconne movements and minuets, also sometimes with accompanying variations. We're going to focus on the first sonata in the first series, the Sonata in A Major, which employs an opening prelude in a free, improvisatory manner, alternating highly euphonious chord arpeggios with connecting scale lines, often ornamented. Let's hear the opening measures. The second movement, still in A major, is a traditional allemande in which the initial upbeat figure delivers virtually the whole movement in microcosm. The start of a descending scale from the tonic, it begins with a sixteenth, a dotted sixteenth, and a thirty-second note, which goes to a pair of eighth notes. Here are the first two measures. As you could hear in my example, the descending motive in the left hand is immediately followed by a similar ascending one in the right hand. In either ascending or descending form, this motive is heard six times in the first two bars. Here's the entire first section without repeat. Thank you. 
Although the motive I just alluded to dominates the first section, it is not the only interesting idea to be found. In the second half of the section, we hear some effective interlocking patterns between the hands, and near the end, a strong ascending bass line doubled in tenths above in the repeated right-hand pattern. And, of course, Handel modulates around a bit, touching on both F-sharp minor and E minor, among other keys, before ending securely on the dominant of A major. The second section of the movement, also 11 measures long, immediately brings back the head motive, but, as it proceeds, relies more on ascending figuration patterns and the strong ascending bass line mentioned earlier, which is heard twice here, once more starting on the tonic and the second time on the subdominant or fourth scale degree. There are also more cleverly interlocking patterns in the last four bars, this time involving suspensions. Here is the second section without repeat. The current that follows is not as tightly integrated from a motivic perspective, although it does echo some motives from the right hand to the left, and exploit some interesting rhythmic devices wherein one voice or another is tied across the bar. The second part of the first section presents some of the same ideas in a new context, as does the second section of the movement now starting on the dominant. Here is the first section without repeat. The suite concludes with a perky gigue in 12-8, which begins with a series of octave leaps from the fifth of the scale, the top note ornamented by a mordant, followed by a series of eighth note triplets against the repeated tonic note. The leaping octaves do recur, often transferred to the left hand, where they create a jaunty offbeat syncopation, but it's the triplet figures in various patterns that dominate the movement. Here's the first section without repeat.
We'll turn now to one of Handel's works for solo instrument and continuo accompaniment, taken from a collection of 13 sonatas given the designation of Opus 1 by the publisher. This first set of sonatas is not without its ambiguities and complications. The authenticity of some of the sonatas included was challenged almost immediately, and later editions replaced them with sonatas that were even more dubious. The intended instrumentation was also in doubt in some cases. Sonata number 6 in G minor, which we're going to look at, is designated in this collection as for oboe and continuo, although the original manuscript seems to indicate violin, and the lowest notes in the solo line extend below the oboe's capabilities, although higher octave options are also included for the oboist. To complicate things further, Handel appears to have suggested that the work was also playable by viola da gamba with some appropriate octave switching. Of course, the point has often been made in regard to the instrumentation of Baroque chamber music that publishers, and in some cases the composers themselves, were happy to make instrumentation options available because this would naturally increase the sales potential. At any rate, the sonata, thought to have been composed around 1724, has for some time thought to be most appropriate for a violin, and that's how we're going to hear it today. This sonata falls into the typical sonata da chiesa form, beginning with a slow movement marked larghetto in this instance, moving to a faster, fugally inclined allegro movement, then a much shorter second larghetto movement, a much briefer adagio movement, and ending with a sprightly gigue-like allegro movement in 12-8. We'll begin with the first phrase of the first movement allegro. Here is a simplified version. Handel was known as a graceful and fluent melodist, his melodies perhaps less difficult to absorb at first listen than some of Bach's, whose melodies as his son Carl Philipp Emanuel and former student Johann Friedrich Agricola noted in their posthumous description of the senior Bach style were characterized by strange, new, and expressive beautiful ideas. That is not to say, however, that Handel's melodies are always either simple or obvious. The opening phrase of the melody you just heard begins on the fifth of the scale, D in the key of G minor, and starts by leaping up a minor sixth before it begins a long, undulating descent. That ascending leap is not forgotten as the melody continues, although when it recurs is in a different metric context, but it's the second half of the first measure, that and the gently syncopated figure concluding with a series of descending sixteenth notes that prove the more persistent ideas. Here's the first phrase again in an actual performance. The phrases that follow draw motivically from the earlier measures and introduce some new dotted rhythm figures along the way. Handel touches on other tonal areas, including D minor, but at that point we suddenly veer unexpectedly toward C minor, with the introduction of some new, but still familiar sounding, motives treated sequentially. Let's hear that much, including the turn to C minor. 
We do, of course, return to G minor at the end of the movement, employing motives that continue to sound familiar without actually being repetitions of anything heard before. In the last measure, we shift to adagio, possibly to allow for a little cadenza-like flourish, and we end on the dominant. The next movement still in G minor is in common time and marked allegro. The violin's melody begins with an offbeat motive moving up the tonic triad, one which almost immediately tilts toward B-flat major before returning to home base in a couple of bars. The continual bass line then repeats the first two bars of the theme, which seem at this point as if they'll be the subject of a fugal movement, two octaves down, half a bar later, modifying the last two beats for harmonic purposes. Meanwhile, the violin has passed on to a new motive, one which never actually returns in the course of the movement before cadencing back on G minor and introducing a flow of sixteenths in a sequentially repeated pattern, although one that is subject to some modification as it proceeds. When the flow of sixteenths stops, a new version of the subject is introduced in B-flat major by the violin, immediately imitated by a variant in the continual bass line. We then encounter another sixteenth note pattern, unfolding sequentially up a step each time, with the bass line hinting at the opening notes of the subject against it. The level of activity then reduces slightly to eighth notes, and we hear a solid cadence in B-flat. Let's hear it that far. We make our way back to G minor quickly, and the violin reintroduces the subject, but just the first measure of the subject this time, answered immediately down a couple of octaves by the continual bass. The violin then repeats that first measure again, up a fifth, again echoed by the bass. The violin goes on to reference other motives from the subject, but the actual subject, both measures in order, never appears again. And for the remainder of the movement, we alternate between new arpeggio-based figuration patterns and clever motivic interplay between violin and continual. The third movement, Adagio in 3-4 time, begins in E-flat major, but 10 bars later, after a serious flirtation with C minor, closes on the dominant of G minor. we 
after that brief but expressive respite, the finale, back in G minor in its 12-8 meter, displays the rhythmic energy of a gigue with its near-constant flow of 12 eighth notes to the bar. It is no mere frolic, however, but rather it manages to muster a certain intensity, its sequences and repeated patterns establishing a strong sense of momentum, even considering the fact that this particular performance takes a more moderate tempo than many others. Here is the first section. The first section ends on a D, and the original figured bass symbols suggest a D minor harmonization, although my performance makes it a D major chord. Many, but not all, performances do the same. All the better, I suppose, to send us back to the repeat of the first section with a dominant tonic cadence. But the second section clearly begins in D minor, and not surprisingly, brings back the opening measures in the new key. After that point, the melody breaks off to some extent and larger ascending leaps begin to be incorporated into the eighth note flow on a more regular basis. We stay in D minor for a while, but as we've come to expect in these two section movements, the longer second section is more active tonally, before, of course, eventually setting back into G minor. Handel never requotes the opening theme of the first section note for note, but the second measure of the theme returns to lead us to the final cadence. Handel composed other chamber music as well, notably trio sonatas, but we're going to move on now to the concertos, and we're going to start with one of the concertos from the Opus 3 collection published in 1734, that is, Concerto No. 1 in B-flat major. As is the case for some other collections of instrumental works by Handel, there are some problems here. First of all, it is not at all clear that Handel gave his blessings to the publication of these works in this form, and Handel authorities have commented on the fact that at least some of the concertos exhibit a mixture of new movements and older movements originally composed for other contexts. Concerto No. 1 has been described as presumably a fragment of a larger work. While the first movement is in B-flat major, the next two are in G minor and although it's common enough for a middle movement to be in the relative minor key, it's a bit unusual for the final movement to be in a different key than the first. Also, this concerto is in three movements only, unusual for Handel, who more often followed Corelli's example of combining more movements, up to five, but often of shorter duration. And for a finale, the last movement here is rather brief, only 36 bars in length. The opening ritornello theme for the first movement begins with some generic-sounding descending triads on the tonic, played in unisons and octaves by all of the strings and continuo. We'll call this descending arpeggio motive ritornello 1. After a single bar of this, we proceed to a much more interesting idea, which features an initial octave drop in eighth notes from the tonic note, followed by four sixteenths starting back up the tonic triad. This idea, which we'll call Ritornello II, is then repeated down a step twice, followed after a dramatic ascending leap by a descending line, which prepares the cadence back on tonic. 
Here's an example showing the first five bars of the opening Ritornello theme, first violins only. After the first five bars, the two oboes take over for what constitutes a mini solo section with a new idea, harmonized primarily in thirds. It's somewhat repetitive, but does exhibit a lot of rhythmic energy. Here is a simplified example. After the oboes have had their brief fling, the Ritornello theme re-enters. The two earlier ideas, particularly Ritornello II presented in an extended sequence, are both in evidence, now supplemented by motives drawn from the oboes' brief solo section. We'll hear the first 14 bars. Having arrived on the dominant chord, the first violin takes the first of a series of solos, consisting of a seamless flow of sixteenth notes in scale-wise passages and figuration patterns, often sequenced, of a type which we've certainly seen before, where some notes in the repeated pattern are reiterated while others ascend or descend, usually by step. Here is the first section, beginning with the first violin solo. Figuration patterns of this sort are common to just about every Baroque composer in this period, and figuration patterns employed by Bach are not necessarily dramatically different than those employed by Handel or even Vivaldi or Corelli, although I think it's fair to say that you're likely to hear more internal movement of lines within Bach's figuration patterns than you are in the works of some of his contemporaries. The usefulness of these virtuoso figuration patterns is obvious. Yes, they often tend to spin out in predictable, even mechanical ways, but they allow the composer to change the texture, often reducing it dramatically, especially when, as is so often the case, they are handed to the soloists in a concerto. This allows for a dynamic contrast as well as textural and coloristic contrast, and yet the level of energy remains high, sometimes even peaking in the frenzied virtuoso activity of the soloists. During my example, you could hear elements from the Ritornello enter beneath the soloist with various levels of prominence, and at the end, the oboes return with their familiar motives. 
Soon afterwards, the soloistic activity is split between first violin and first oboe with fairly minimal accompaniment beneath. Elements from the ritonello continue to interject themselves occasionally in the midst of all this soloistic activity, but the soloistic activity dominates until the end of the movement with only a token return of the main ritonello ideas in the closing measures. The slow movement that follows, now in G minor in 3-2 meter, is a highly contrasting one. It features a pair of flutes or recorders prominently, but also oboe and violin soloists as the movement proceeds. The opening theme begins with a stately arpeggiation of the tonic triad, starting on the fifth scale degree, but it's the second measure, which begins with an ascending leap followed by a descending scale fragment in dotted rhythms, that proves to be the most important thematic element appearing three times in the first eight measures on various pitch levels. Here is a simplified example of the first two bars. Other than the second flute harmonizing with the first, mostly in thirds and sixths, the accompaniment in the opening measures is really rather sparse, the bass line provided only by bassoons but eventually the oboe soloist enters, unobtrusively, but very expressively. Here's a performance of the first 18 measures, ending on a cadence on B-flat major. Shortly thereafter, the flutes drop out, and we hear an exquisite, highly ornate, overlapping duet between oboe and violin soloists. After this solo section, the entire orchestra then states a ritornello, which is largely new but draws on some of the same dotted rhythms from the second measure of the movement. This gives way to another exchange between solo oboe and violin, and a final homophonic ritornello with full orchestra. We again shift into adagio for the final bars, allowing for a brief cadenza-like flourish from the soloists.
The third and final movement is a quick, colorful one. Not only do first and second oboes get their own solo section, but even the first and second bassoons get into the act as the movement progresses. The opening ritornello is short, only four bars, but vigorous. The first two bars start with the melody quickly leaping between the notes of the G minor tonic triad and then beginning a long descending line to the lower octave. Bars three and four repeat that idea, but add some clever syncopations to that descending line, giving it even more rhythmic energy. Then the solos take over. First the two oboes, with a run of sixteenth notes that combine broken thirds and lower neighbor figures with scale fragments over the bassoon's bass line. The texture gradually accumulates beneath the oboes as we head toward a cadence on B-flat major. At that point, the solo violin takes over with arpeggio-based figuration patterns, the pattern moving up a step each measure. More sequences follow, with the soloist repeatedly employing accented struck suspensions to enrich the sequential harmonic progression beneath it. Here is an excerpt showing both the oboe duet and the violin solo. A brief ritornello follows the violin solo. You just heard a little of it at the end of my excerpt. But Handel is not finished with colorful solo passages. And after a cadence on D major, a bassoon duet is given prominence through another sequential passage, each chord a fifth lower than the previous one, as the rest of the orchestra drops out or quiets, the violins only occasionally echoing the bassoon's motives. After a one-measure recap of the oboe's earlier duet to serve as a transition, the opening ritornello returns to round off the movement. Here's an excerpt from the bassoon duet through to the final cadence. The Opus 3 concertos are sometimes thought of as less mature than the later concertos, but there's a great deal of exuberance and a lot of color here, and they've always seemed to me to be among Handel's most interesting. We'll turn now to Handel's organ concertos, a genre which he can legitimately be described as having invented, if Bach invented, the harpsichord concerto. Organ was Handel's first professional instrument, of course, but in these concertos, the venue of choice was not the church, but the concert hall and the theater, with Handel frequently offering these concertos up with himself as soloist as virtuoso entertainments between the act of an oratorio performance. As such, they are, with one possible exception, 
not written for an instrument with independent pedals, and so the textures produced by the organ itself will not generally be as complex as we're used to hearing from many of Bach's organ works. One of the concertos is a new version of a work originally composed for harp and orchestra, and some of the others make use of material that Handel had used elsewhere, which returns us to the issue of his tendency to self-borrow, as well as borrow from other composers on occasion. A number of scholars have dealt with this issue, and their discussions sometimes make the point that making use of borrowed material, which is somehow then transformed by its new context and the way in which it is developed, is a perfectly reasonable modus operandi, and in fact dates back quite honorably to the Middle Ages. One such scholar is John T. Weinmiller, who in his article Recontextualizing Handel's Borrowings does an excellent job of pointing out how Handel made very creative uses of borrowed material. But that being said, we're going to take a look at one of the organ concertos, Opus 4, Number 4 in F major, that appears to be newly composed for the occasion. The work is in four movements, the third being a brief adagio. The first movement in duple meter and marked allegro is scored for two oboes, strings, and continuo, and begins after an opening announcement of the tonic chord by the organ soloist with a simple but rhythmically energetic theme, combining mostly triadic arpeggios and eighth notes, faster-moving scale fragments, and sweeping scale passages, all presented in octaves and unisons. The soloist then takes over, right hand only, with a variant of the theme which stays a little longer on the tonic triad, while the left hand enters with imitation at the lower octave, the result being the two voices harmonizing in tenths. After just four bars, the soloist breaks into a new pattern, still arpeggio-based, but now featuring a series of octave drops within the pattern, which is repeated down a step every two beats. These passages have been alternating between louder and softer, and now a third new idea is introduced by the soloist, a pattern of sixteenth notes based on a slightly different triadic arpeggio figure, which initially moves down by step before beginning to move back and forth between tonic-based patterns and dominant-based patterns. This flows into another new idea, number four, which begins similarly to the last, but now exploits undulating scale patterns. Here's the first solo section by the organ, which makes use of the four different melodic ideas I just mentioned, only the first of which is clearly drawn from the opening orchestral ritonello, although all are somewhat related and they flow naturally from one to another.
As you noticed in my excerpt, Handel reintroduces the orchestra as the fourth solo idea is played out sequentially, accompanying it with fairly quiet references to the triadic motive from the opening theme, the whole passage adapted to bring about a modulation to C major, where a variant of the original theme is again quoted and then imitated by the organ and, four measures later, the whole orchestra. This is followed by another brief solo section, where the texture becomes a little more complex, and the organist briefly reintroduces the second idea I referred to earlier, the octave drop idea, after which it is joined by the orchestra in quoting the ascending scale figure in octaves, which earlier brought the opening ritonello to a close. So Handel is using a number of reasonably distinct musical ideas in a short space, probably more than we would expect from Bach, but none have been orphans. They have all been returned to and requoted or redeveloped in some way, albeit very briefly in some cases. Here's the section in C major where the organist develops the so-called octave drop motive and is later joined by the orchestra, which quotes the ascending scale figure that finished off the first ritonello. As the movement proceeds, there are a number of solo sections for the organist, which vary in texture from thin, although heavily ornamented lines for the right hand alone, to contrapuntal activity in both hands. Sometimes direct references are made to thematic material from the ritonello, and at other times, the soloist relies on various figuration patterns. One solo section marked ad libitum, and very possibly improvised in the original performance, devils in new keys, including F minor and B flat minor briefly, before settling back in F major. Various ritonello sections, some fairly short and appearing in different keys, periodically interrupt these solo sections, and a final abbreviated ritonello back in F major takes us to the end of the movement. The next movement, B flat major and marked andante, combines an effective ritonello theme originally played by organ alone. It's characterized by numerous accented dissonances and a repeated, sometimes sequentially, trill-lightened motive that appears several times in the opening four bars, sometimes in the middle of the texture and sometimes in the highest voice. Here is that motive slowed down with surrounding voices and dissonances subtracted. After four bars, the orchestral strings duplicate the opening organ statement with a fuller texture, and the cellos providing a more active bass line. Here are the first eight bars, four from the organ, and then the next four from the strings.
At the end of my example, you heard the beginning of the first solo section. It too is organized sequentially in part and introduces new triplet-based rhythms. But after the rather emotional dissonances heard in the opening ritonello, this passage seems strangely bland by comparison. As this triplet-based solo section continues, the orchestra returns to provide minimal accompaniment but does set up some nice motivic exchanges with the soloist from time to time. An internal ritonello section in C minor splits up the solo sections, and the final solo section introduces some new dotted 16th 32nd note patterns in sync with the repeating triplets. For the final ritonello, we hear organ doubled by the orchestra, now including oboes and bassoons. Here is the last part of the movement, the end of the final solo section going into the final ritonello. The Adagio movement in D minor is brief but expressive. Written primarily for organ, the orchestra enters only in the last two bars, probably intended to accompany a brief cadenza-like flourish. The melody, like so many of Bach's, is split, divided into higher and lower layers. Here is a simplified example of just the first two measures as written. But the entire movement is indicated ad limitum, so one would expect a fair amount of freedom in the rendition of the basic melodic idea. Here is the entire nine-measure movement.
The finale, back in F major, marked allegro and in duple meter, is a very lively one, with fugal imitation prominently displayed, but also making extensive use of animated figuration patterns by the organist. It begins with the fugal subject introduced by organ and first violins and oboe. The subject starts on the tonic note and begins climbing up the scale in half notes, but after it reaches the fourth scale degree, it plummets down an octave to a series of repeated eighth notes. These give way to a series of skips and leaps which serve as a cadential figure returning us back to the tonic. Here's a simplified example. Five measures into the movement, the first fugal answer enters, in the alto voice of the organ part, that is to say underneath the continuing countersubject in the top voice, and as usual doubled by the orchestra, in this case the second violins. Soon the texture increases to three voices, as the second answer comes in down an octave from the first answer heard in the organ and violas. This unfolds against a new countersubject, somewhat related to the first, but not identical with it. Two measures later, the third answer, back on tonic, is heard in the organ bass clef range, doubled by cellos and continual bass. Three bars later, we have arrived back on tonic after a couple of brief tonicizations, with a firm cadence, and the first exposition comes to an end. Let's hear that far. The first episode, handed largely to the organ soloist, does introduce some new ideas in mostly three-part writing. It also quotes the fugue subject, but as usual in an episode, doesn't really treat it imitatively. Other new patterns, some of them involving trills followed by large ascending leaps, are introduced, and the orchestra enters occasionally to fortify the louder passages. Here's a bit of the first episode. When the subject begins to re-enter in organ and orchestra, this time preceded by a new countersubject, we probably expect a new exposition, that is, we expect the subject to be treated fugally again. But although part of the subject is quoted, both the rising half notes, repeated sequentially, and the repeated eighth notes, we don't hear them continuously, and after only seven bars, with no imitative answers, we move on to a new episode dominated by the organ.
As you heard, once the section which we thought might be a new exposition cuts off, the soloist takes control again, initially with the trill motive referred to earlier, but soon passing to repeated figuration patterns, split into two levels, with the top line, and sometimes the bottom line, descending by step. The orchestra jumps in again in the middle of the solo episode, a little more forcefully than before, while the soloist now becomes a little more adventurous, tonally speaking, flirting with various new keys while working through more sequential passages. The organ also reintroduces the first part of the subject as an introduction to what we again assume will be a bona fide exposition in B-flat major. At this point, the orchestra and organ quote the subject together, but it is immediately broken off and we return to an organ episode featuring the trill motives we have heard twice before. The subject comes back one last time, measures before the end of the movement, first in the lower octave played by both organ and orchestra, seemingly in the wrong key, although you could consider it one of those cases where the answer actually comes in before the subject. At any rate, it does not continue in the lower octave, but it does appear in the proper key of F major in orchestra and organ. It is stated once in variant form, never truly imitated, and we head to the final cadence once more, preceded by a shift to adagio to allow for a cadential flourish. Here is the conclusion of the movement, starting with the organ soloist's last episode. this a proper fugue? It's not as if Bach had not at times in his many fugues cut off an exposition before all the voices had entered in fugal imitation. Still, I think it's safe to say that frequently in Handel's fugues, he's a bit less committed to fugal development as a logical extension of the melodic material than his Bach, and more prone to cut off fugal passages in favor of a freer, perhaps more improvisatory flow. Running out of time here, I'm not going to look at any of the 12 concerti grossi which Handel composed in 1739. Following Corelli's lead, they are all composed for a concertino group of two violins and cello with four-part rapiano strings and continuo. Oboe parts were later added to four of the concertos, mostly doubling the violins. However, no less an authority than the scholar Anthony Hicks has characterized that set as the epitome of Handel's art to be set alongside Bach's Brandenburg Concertos. So clearly, these are important works and certainly worthy of investigation. In the time remaining for this episode, I am instead going to make a nod toward two extremely famous instrumental works by Handel, the Water Music Suites and Music for the Royal Fireworks. The Water Music Suite was composed to accompany a royal water party in June 1717 in which the king and his guests traveled by barge along the Thames from Whitehall to Chelsea and back. Whether the individual pieces were presented on that occasion in the order we now know them is questionable, but the attractive qualities of many of the individual movements is without question. 
Anthony Hicks references it as the first orchestral work composed in England to include horns with crooks to allow for different keys. We'll listen to movement three from the first Water Music Suite, where the two horns contribute some rather simple, but in context, very effective melodic material, playing primarily together in thirds, but also emphasizing some very sonorous-sounding open fifths. Handel excels at combining short, rhythmically charged, somewhat repetitive phrases, and the trills add quite a bit to the instrumental color, of course. And in the last section of the movement, the horns, along with the oboes, bassoon, strings, and continuo, including a double bass, provide some particularly catchy syncopations, as you heard. The other monumentally popular work by Handel is, of course, the music for the Royal Fireworks, composed in 1749 for three oboes, three horns, three trumpets, two bassoons and a contrabassoon, and the full complement of strings and continuo. As mentioned earlier, Handel was a master of the French overture style, and the overture that begins this group may be as regal a work of homage to a monarch as ever was composed. Here's a bit of the initial adagio section, slow and majestic sounding.
The faster middle section, marked allegro and in 3-4, is normally fugal, but here Handel introduces new dotted 8th 16th note rhythms which are echoed more than imitated. Although the melodic material is simple, we experience constant changes in texture and instrumental color, with the three oboes, often joined by the strings, horns, and trumpets, all given solo opportunities. In this performance, the timpani are supplemented with some additional percussion not indicated in the score, but quite possibly heard in the original performance. Later movements provide a pleasing variety of styles and forms, including a bourree, siciliana, and a pair of minuets. But for our last example, we're going to play a little of the wonderfully heraldic fourth movement, marked Allegro entitled La Réjouissance, or Rejoicing. That's all for this episode. For the next, we'll look at Bach's English Suites.